Our text this morning is Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. Luke 12, 49 through 53. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Uh, Father, as we look at this text, this teaching from Jesus, Lord, I pray that you give us clarity to our own soul. Christ is, we know, is teaching this so that they can know which kingdom they're seeking. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom this morning, that you might even save this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Niger, Africa on an 11-day mission trip, and I got to meet a man named Ibrahim who was already kind of a legend in my own mind uh, of what I'd been told about him from my friend Mark that's a missionary uh, over there. Uh, He told me uh, about his story, how God saved him, how missionaries had shared the gospel with him many times, and he actually served as, as kind of like a servant to the missionaries, or like a, he guarded the house of missionaries for many years, but was never interested uh, in the gospel of Christ. And then he proceeded to have dreams where Christ was basically telling him that He was in rebellion to him and that judgment and destruction was going to come upon him. And at that point, he went to the missionaries and basically told them the dreams and said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to receive this Christ? And so as I met Ibrahim, he probably wasn't even five feet tall, not a strong gentleman, but kind of a little tiny guy. And from the moment I met him, he would, the one of the sweetest souls you've ever seen, he would grab on to my arm and walk around with me and Mark would translate and he would say things like, you're white and I'm black, but we're brothers. You live long way away I live here, but we're family. Well, 
The interesting thing about Ibrahim is when he became a Christian, he uh, instantly had to count the cost as to uh, what this was going to mean for his life. It wasn't very long after he became a Christian that his wife passed away. And in that culture, the community would help you bury your loved ones. It's very much a communal society. In fact, if you don't have the support of the community, it's hard to even survive. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, Three out of five children die before they're five years old. Uh, That's uh, how hard it is. And if you can't rely on your neighbors during tough times, uh, you may not make it. And as his wife had died, people gathered around him and began to mock him saying, this is what happens when you follow that Jesus. This is what happens to you when you leave Allah, our, our God. See, you're cursed. And they were telling the crowds, whatever you do, don't follow Christ because look at this. And they're basically saying, we won't help you unless you renounce Christ. And Ibrahim, uh, I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically he said, I'll bury her myself. I will follow Christ. Well, at that moment, others who had heard of Christ, but had been too afraid to step forward and trust him, came and stood around Ibrahim and said, we'll help you bury her. But what was evident in Niger was if you were going to follow Christ, it was going to cost you almost immediately. You're going to be cut off from your relationships and often from your family. Your life would be at risk, whether by straight-out persecution or you may starve to death because no one will come to you and buy from you Uh, whatever business you're running, you'll be rejected. And this is something that Jesus said, don't be surprised about. You know, we might not be able to relate to that degree in our culture with this, but we can relate to this maybe in other ways. And in chapter 12, Jesus has been uh, teaching his disciples and telling the crowds and warning the Pharisees. He begins chapter 12. You remember what he says? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he's saying, be careful because the religious leaders here, the ones that look like those who know and love God, actually don't know God, actually are headed for hell. In fact, as he's teaching in in verse 13, someone in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
There's someone there thinking about how they're being ripped off with their money that they're not getting from their brother. And Jesus warns the crowd. He says, beware of covetousness. Here's what Jesus knew is his disciples and anyone who would follow Christ was going to struggle with trying to anchor their life in this world. They're going to be tempted to seek the kingdom of this world. And Jesus says, beware of that. And he tells a parable of a guy who says, verse 18, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. I will, uh, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he's teaching a terrifying reality. How tempted are you to store up treasure for yourself down here on this earth? How tempted are you to forget that your money and your goods are not your money, but it's God's money? With what God has given you, are you rich towards God? Could someone look at your checkbook and see how you spend your money and they would say, that's someone who has their hope set on the kingdom of God. They are not putting their hope in the here and now, but they're investing where they believe it'll last. And then in verse 28, he says, don't stress about material gain, basically, but rather put your treasure in God. If you put your trust in God, all your needs will be taken care of. You don't have to worry about that. Rather, seek the kingdom of God. Look at what he says in verse 31. Instead of worrying about securing your life down here on this earth and living for the here and now, he says, instead, seek his kingdom. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They live for the praise of man now. They love money. They love prestige. Beware of that. Beware of worrying about all that. Rather, seek the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you. God is a faithful provider. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old. So Jesus looks at them and he looks at his disciples and he says, don't hang on to this stuff like this. Don't sit on it. I just heard a great example at small group 
this week about this person was watching uh, how children are playing together and how they fight over toys and how this one child would go real quickly, grab the toys, and then basically sit on them and defend the toys the whole time they have an opportunity to play with the toys. And he doesn't even get to play with the toys because he's sitting on them. And Jesus is saying, don't live lives like that. Don't live your life seeking to get all you can get in the here and now. Rather, have open hands. Be ready to share and prove that your life is not bound up in the here and now. And then last week we saw how he gave two examples of servants. One was faithful and the other set of servants was not. One was ready. One servant was ready. He loved his master. He wanted to obey what his master gave him to do. And when his master went to a wedding feast, he was doing exactly what the master wanted him to do. He was ready to open the door for his master when he returned. And Jesus was saying, be careful because the master will come home at a time you don't expect like a thief in the night. And he's speaking of his second coming. Jesus is going to come and you're going to be found living for the kingdom of God, having your anchor of your life sunk into Christ or not. No, you're not going to be perfect. Yes, you're going to be still struggling with sin. But if you could go into your heart, what you're going to see is that your life and your hope is not in the here and now, but it's sunk in Christ. Because he says many, Christ is going to return and they knew what to do and they just said, ah, he's not coming back for a long time. So I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to treat people poorly. I'm not going to use what he gave me to serve other people with. I'm going to selfishly spend it on myself. He says, the master of that house will come in an hour you do not expect and will cut that servant into pieces. And then he speaks of a servant that was indifferent, that knew the master's will. He didn't really harm people, but he was just indifferent and he wasn't fulfilling what God had called him to do. He's going to receive a severe beating. And then he says there will be another one who actually never even knew the master was coming back and he'll receive a light beating. And all three of those are people who will spend eternity in hell with different degrees of punishment based on what they knew or didn't know about Christ. Jesus was saying, that your eternity is going to be determined by himself, by his coming. You're going to spend it in one place or another based on whether or not you know Christ, whether you love Christ. In our text this morning, 
He's going to talk about how Christ is a divider even down here on this earth in the here and now. And uh, this is uh, what we see in verse 49. This is point one in your notes. Embrace the mission of Christ in his kingdom. Verse 49, I came to, this is a purpose statement. Why did Jesus come? Here's one of the reasons Jesus came. To cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and the fire isn't going yet. I wish it was already kindled and it was already rolling. What in the world does this mean? Fire, in this context, and many other places in the Bible, seems to be representing judgment. That Christ came to be a dividing uh, to, to be a watershed figure. He came to be a sword to split things in half. People will be judged by Him. In Deuteronomy 32, 22, uh, speaking of God's judgment, we hear, for fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol and devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. In Hebrews 10.25, we hear similar language. We're told not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on deliberately, are sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will, will consume his adversaries. So he's saying, be careful that you don't hear about the gospel and at one time have hope in it, but then begin to say, well, I don't need to meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ anymore. I don't need to fight the fight of faith. It says the whole book of Hebrews is warning against falling away from the hope that we have in Christ. Now the Jews would be surprised in one sense uh, by this statement. They knew that the Messiah was going to come and defeat their enemies. They knew that when the Messiah came, there was going to be judgment. They just believed that God was going to judge the Gentiles and just let their kingdom flourish. Where they were surprised is with this one who's doing the miracles only the Messiah could do. The one who is claiming to be the Messiah is teaching that they're going to hell. Is teaching that if you're not with Christ, you're against him. 
Jesus was teaching that the religious leaders were the ones that were going to be judged. And this would have been shocking uh, to them. When fire comes, it has a couple different things that it does. When a fire comes to combustible materials, it consumes it. It feeds off it until it destroys whatever that is, like a piece of wood. But then, fire, when fire comes to something that's non-combustible, like gold, it refines it. It makes it more pure. And Christ says, I came into this world. He's going to purify some, and he's going to destroy others. And it's going to be based on whether or not the one person is finding their hope in him, is seeking the kingdom of God, trusting Christ for their salvation, or not. What does he mean when he says in wood that it was already kindled? Look at verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now baptism means to be immersed and what Jesus is talking about is that in the future days, Jesus is going to be immersed into the wrath of God and pay the price of sins. He's going to drink down the full cup of God's wrath for all those who will trust in him. And every day of Jesus' life, he knew that he came to accomplish this feat. And he knew that on that cross, that event was going to divide people for all eternity into two categories. And Jesus, in distress, is saying, I wish it was already here. I just want to accomplish what I came to do. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Let me just read some scripture that speaks to this. The prophets prophesied that a person was going to be saved not by their own good works, but by a substitute. Listen to this. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you could just fathom the justice of God, the fact that there will never be one sin that goes unpunished. Every sin will receive the just retribution 
for that rebellion. And when Jesus went to the cross, God put our sin on him, if you're trusting him savingly, and all of his wrath he poured out on Christ. Two people in the world, those who are sinners who don't deserve heaven, who are saved by grace because they put their hope in Christ, and those who thought they could get by without him, and they themselves will die under the just wrath of God forever and eternity in hell because the one in whom you've offended is a eternal God. So the only punishment that brings justice is an eternal punishment. So your only hope is to have an eternal substitute that's the same worth of God take your place or you yourself pay for those sins. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Romans 4.25 who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To get into heaven, you need no sin, and you need perfect righteousness, and you don't have either of those. In fact, we're told not to boast in our righteousness because we don't have any. Jesus is the only one that can take away your sin, and he's the only one that can gift you the gift of righteousness. And when you trust in him, both things happen. Jesus lived 33 years of a perfect life. He never sinned. That life built up perfect righteousness under the law. If you can imagine that righteousness like a perfect white robe, and if you can picture your sin like a nasty smelling robe that reeks, when you trust in Christ, Jesus takes your robe he takes off his, he puts his around you, he puts your robe on and he pays the punishment for your sin as he gifts you his life. You realize you and I will be rewarded to be in the presence of God for all eternity because of what Jesus did, not because of what you or I did. This is the gospel Jesus came to accomplish it. Now listen to me. Liberal scholars and secularists will speak of Jesus as one who got too fanatical and got himself into a big mess. He was a good teacher, but he got over the top and then he ended up getting himself killed. That is garbage theology. Because Jesus knew why he came. And he came to accomplish salvation. Listen to Luke 13.32. Go tell that fox. He was told that Herod's going to try to kill him. 
Jesus says, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to walk right into my own death. And I'm not going to be afraid of Herod today. I'm going to keep casting out demons. And I'm going to keep he healing. And then I'm going to go into Jerusalem and I'm going to die because I'm going to accomplish my work there. Acts 4.27, Peter says this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you realize before a person ever lived on the face of this earth, there was a book called the book of the lamb who is slain. Jesus wasn't accidentally killed. It was predestined and it was planned before the foundation of the world, how God would save sinners. It's not for no reason that in John 19.30, we read, when Jesus had received sour wine, he's on the cross he said, it is finished. And he died under the wrath of God for our sins, accomplishing what he came to do. And a fire was kindled that would never stop. And the world will be divided into two groups. What do you do with the naked Jewish Galilean hanging on a cross, condemned as a criminal. This is a, as offensive as you can get. Are you going to be offended by him or are you going to find your hope in him? As offensive as that picture is, a man being beaten and dying naked on the cross, it teaches us of what it costs to pay for our sins. It teaches us about us. It teaches us about God's justice. He will punish sins as the Son of God lies dead on that cross. It teaches us about the love of God because Jesus came willingly to purchase your salvation. So, embrace the mission of Christ, why He came. Secondly, embrace the dividing work of Christ's kingdom. Many people are want to follow Christ until this point. Rubber meets the road. People want to follow Christ until rubber meets the road with their checkbook. People want to follow Christ until rubber meets the road with their relationships. People want to follow Christ until the rubber meets the road with their reputation in a culture. And Jesus is laying these out, telling them, don't put your hope down here. 
Look at what he says in verse 51. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. We've already seen this in verses 41 through 48. People will be divided into the faithful servants that trusted Christ and lived for him and those who didn't. And we see that here on earth, Christ also brings division. Now, this might surprise you because we know that Jesus is called the prince of what? Peace, right? Isaiah 6, 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. His throne will last forever. His dominion will be forever. Christ makes peace between sinners and God. God will make peace in the kingdom of God. But in order for there to be peace, there has to be judgment. Satan needs to be thrown into the lake of fire. The demons need to be thrown into the lake of the fire. Unbelievers need to be thrown into the lake of fire before true peace is comes. And so, yes, Christ brings peace in a sense, but down here right now at this time in history, Christ brings division. And this was... We've seen this uh, already in Luke. In Luke 179, you remember what Mary said in uh, the Magnificent and her prayer, our song? She says, she speaks of Christ, she prophesies of him to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. We see that. But then we also see uh, when she says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. And then in Luke uh, 2.34, Simeon prophesies and, over Mary and blesses uh, Mary. She says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is what John the Baptist pointed to as he was preparing the way for Christ in Luke 3.16. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the fleshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is pictured as having this fork, and he's going to get rid of the chaff, and that'll be burned, 
and he's going to put the wheat in the barn. And with the person of Jesus Christ, the whole world will stand in one or two categories. There will be sheep and there will be goats. There will be the faithful servant. There will be the unfaithful servant. There will be the sinner saved by grace because they believed in Christ. And there will be the sinner who dies in their sin because they would not have Christ. And Jesus is teaching them about where to anchor their soul in their life. And this is a common teaching. I mean, we could go through so many verses. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth, but I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. John 7, 41 says, uh, these are just examples of how Jesus divided people even in his earthly ministry. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, uh, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem and the village where David was? So there was a great division among the people over him. John 9.16, some Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And there's many more examples of this. Jesus told his disciples, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. There was given again a division among the Jews because of these words. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they'll do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate you. We get to point three, embrace the kingdom of God, even if it means rejection in your closest relationships. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, take up in chapter nine, you need to take up your cross and follow me. You need to die to yourself. Deny yourself. If you want to follow me, you can't cling to your money like this. You have to recognize yourself as a servant. If you want to cling to your relationships, Try to hold those together as you follow Christ. You're not worthy to be my disciple. We've already seen that in Luke. But look at what he says. For now, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Here's what Jesus does. He goes to the most intimate relationships there are on earth, the family relationship. And he says, depending on whether or not you follow Christ or not, if you follow Christ, there will be division inside your family. 
There just will be. There's one person living for the here and now. And there's others who have their hope anchored in heaven. Those who have their hope anchored in heaven are going to be broken hearted when they see their family members pushing Christ away. And those living in their sin, not wanting Christ, are going to hate the light of their lives. They're not going to want to see it. They're going to want to push it away and it's going to create family conflict. And I'm sure everyone here has experienced that to some degree uh, in your life. To follow Christ means that you even need to let the idolatry of family go. He's already taught this to us. Uh, in Luke, uh, let's see if I got it here. Or in Luke 14, I should say, he's going to teach it to us, 25. He says, now the great crowd of crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You remember when the three people came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you? We already looked at this earlier in Luke. And the last person says, I want to follow you. First, let me go say goodbye to my family. And he says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? That he wants family tension? That he wants you to be jerks? No. There should never be division because of your and my unloving unkindness uh, for our argumentative nature. We're told always to preach the gospel with gentleness and respect to be, give, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. Do this with gentleness and respect. But if you seek Christ and if you love Christ, the division will come from the rejection that will come to you from the world. That's what Jesus says. They hated me. He loved the world. They hated him. He says, they're going to hate you too. Peter says, don't suffer for wrongdoing though, because he knew Christians can light division in a sinful way and seek it out. So the conclusion I want to bring is this. You will bring experience the flames of Christ. You will. You're going to face Christ. You can't get away from it. You're going to stand before him. You will either hear the gospel, hear the hope of Christ. And when you hear the gospel, you'll find out that you're not good. You're sinful. You have no hope in and of yourself. And the flames of Christ will kill you in a sense. Kill any hope of self-righteousness so that you could be saved and put you in a position where you reach your arms up and say, unless you save me, I will not be saved. 
or you'll be destroyed by Christ as you face him on judgment day. There's no getting away from Jesus. He is the watershed person. He is the one with whom those who live for all eternity, one will worship him for all eternity, others will weep and gnash their teeth in light of their failure and rebellion against their creator and against Christ. John says it this way, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To believe is to obey. That's why he interchanges those words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's my prayer that Christ's teaching that we've received in this chapter will cause us to treasure that which is eternal. To anchor our hope in promises that will never grow old and never end. And I pray if you've been living according to the kingdom of this world, maybe you've known it in your head, but you've been indifferent to Christ, my prayer is that God would give you the grace to repent, to want to turn, to lose all hope in whatever life plan you had that's in rebellion to Christ, and that you'll turn to him and find forgiveness for your soul. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God, thank you that if we have Christ, if we trust in Him by faith, we don't have to fear judgment, but rather we can look forward with excitement to our Master returning. God, I pray that our treasure would be set in heaven. That yes, we would live in this world, but that our hope would be set in Christ. And that we could overflow with love and service to those around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.